0: In, everybody, episode 37 of the podcast is Sweeping America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, January 4th, 2021. People, first episode of the new year, and I hope everybody had a great. Really, last couple of weeks. I mean, obviously, 2021, uh, not only 2021, 2020 was so stressful for so many people, and I really do hope that you spent the last few weeks uh, relaxing, spending time with family, spending time with loved ones, that you recharged your batteries, that you refocused, and that you're ready to jump into 2021. And what better way to do so than with a new episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast? I will obviously. Open the show with the big topic since we last spoke, the college football playoff, where frankly I think when you look at both games, the more interesting storyline comes from the losing locker room in the Clemson game, how much did Dabo Sweeney have to blame for his team's struggles, and of course in that Notre Dame-Alabama game, the question once again, is Notre Dame overrated? What is going on with that program? Where I actually think there's a very interesting conversation to say about Notre Dame. Not that they're overrated, but they're actually maybe more properly rated than anybody in college football. They're just not Alabama, Clemson, or Ohio State. From there, we'll talk about that Steve Sarkeesian, Tom Herman switcheroo. Fascinating time in Austin. Uh, And then we'll take a little break. We'll come back with some college basketball. Dante Allen, what a story that was. We're going to load up on Dante Allen stuff. We'll talk about Rutgers beating Iowa. Tennessee suffering its first loss and finally Arkansas very weird performance against Missouri but I do still like that team in the big picture Uh, before we get started what am I everybody please make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres sports podcast listen make it your New Year's resolution go ahead subscribe hit that subscribe button if you're not already iTunes the podcast addict app if you have an Android the podcast addict app is the way to go Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the AeroTorres Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. It really does help us move up those iTunes charts. And of course, if you leave a review, that helps too. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter at Aaron Torres pod on Instagram and the YouTube page is just popping lots of good stuff from this show additional interviews additional segments that I don't do here so make sure to find us on the on YouTube if you just search Aaron Torres I'm impossible to miss got that big ugly mug in front of that big Fox Sports sign you'll find me Uh, make sure to uh, find the YouTube page all right people let's get into it there is no more time to waste uh, and let's get into what is obviously The biggest story since I last spoke with you guys, and that is the college football playoff. Not sure if you heard, two great games were played this weekend, Friday afternoon, Notre Dame versus Alabama. That game goes about as expected, and in the second game, Clemson plays Ohio State. Guessing you probably heard a little bit about them. Guessing you heard that it was a fun day of football if you love college football, starting by the way with Georgia-Cincinnati, which was a fun game in the Peach Bowl, Uh, but let's talk about those two games. And specifically, I think we'll start with the second one, which is Clemson-Ohio State, because to me, not to me, to everybody, that was the more surprising game, right? Notre Dame-Alabama, I think we all kind of thought, okay, you know, Alabama's going to win this game, going to win it pretty comfortably, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, But in the second game, I think most people thought Clemson was going to win. I think most people thought Clemson was going to win convincingly, and instead the exact opposite happened. Uh, Clemson loses to Ohio State, or Ohio State beats Clemson, depending on how you look at it. 49-28 to 28 is the final score. A completely dominant effort by Ohio State in every way imaginable. Uh, Ohio State, they went score for score early, but by the second quarter, 21 nothing run, and I know we don't talk about runs in football, but 21 straight unanswered points by Ohio State. They go up by 21 at halftime, 35-14, Second half, they roll. Final score, 49-28 in a game that was just an Ohio State butt-kicking from about the second series on. Justin Fields, by the way, was phenomenal. Ohio State finished with 639 yards of total offense. Justin Fields, 6 touchdown passes in a game where I think he got tired of hearing about how great Trevor Lawrence was. He was the better quarterback on the field on Friday afternoon, Friday night. I won't say that he's the better quarterback going forward. I don't think you blame Trevor Lawrence for the loss for Clemson. I think you blame Clemson's O-line that couldn't block anybody all game long and almost got Trevor Lawrence killed. But as I look back on that game, Uh, I think really two things kind of stand out to me outside of Ohio State's dominance, right? Like, there's nothing to talk about with Ohio State's dominance. They kick butt, I'm not going to break down on third down and 11, Justin Fields did this and he's awesome. That's not what I do on this show, that's not what it's about. So let's break down kind of what I think are the two more interesting things that came out of this game. The first one is, why did we doubt Ohio State the way that we did? And I know what a lot of you are thinking, and it's Monday morning, and we're all going to do the Monday morning quarterback thing and say, well, of course I thought Ohio State could win. I mean, it's Justin Fields, Ryan Day, bunch of draft picks all over the field. How would you, why would you pick them not to win? Well, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I think that most of the public did not have Ohio State in this game. It's because Vegas told me they didn't. I saw a stat where something crazy like 80% of the tickets that came on this game were on, Ohio, were on Clemson to beat Ohio State, and to cover the touchdown spread, and so as I look back, and I think back to the show that I did last week, to me, that is the single weirdest, most bizarre part of all this, right, is like, why did we all doubt Ohio State, because look, there's been games in the past where we knew one team had no chance against the other one, Notre Dame against Alabama this year, A few years ago, Michigan State played Alabama. Uh, Notre Dame previously against Alabama in the BCS championship game. There are plenty of games where we kind of came in and said that team has no chance, but that team that has no chance kind of fit a certain profile. This Ohio State team did not fit that profile at all. First of all, this little Sisters of the Poor team that we were acting like had no chance, and again, I'm not saying this, Vegas said it because Vegas said almost all of the tickets came in on Clemson about four out of five to cover the game, let alone to win outright, which was even higher, Um, Ohio State doesn't fit the, the bill of the team that we should have been treating as if they had no chance. First of all, we came into the season agreeing Clemson and Ohio State are probably the two best teams. Alabama can maybe get there, but are we even all that sure about Alabama? So we're talking about a team that was a consensus top two to three at worst team coming into the season. We're talking about a team that, oh, by the way, the reason they fought back in July, August, September to get this season on the field was because they thought they had a team good enough to win the national championship. Oh, by the way, they got to the playoff last year, largely outplayed this same Clemson team. They were up 16-0 at one point. They completely outgained them. So why were we questioning that Ohio State could win this game, and even frankly, why they could do it the way that they did it? Beyond that, I would also say that once Ohio State actually got on the field this year, I think the narrative that they stunk was probably a little bit overrated. Yes, they only played six games. Yes, I understand if you're frustrated if you're a Texas A&M fan or a Cincinnati fan or frankly a Clemson fan that they belong, and we'll talk about Dabo in a minute. But in the bigger picture, if you just look at the results, it's really hard to argue that this Ohio State team not only deserved to be in the playoff, but that they were good enough to win it. They only played six games. I get it. I just talked about it. But in the five games for Northwestern, they scored at least 38 points in their first five games. They did it in a bunch of games where they weren't at 100%. And oh, by the way, that Northwestern game that looked so bad that had so many people question whether they belonged. First of all, that Northwestern team's really good. Don't know if you saw what they did to Auburn, but they destroyed Auburn in whatever it was, the Outback Bowl or whatever. And two, on top of that... Uh, Ohio State was down like 20 players in that game. Chris Alave, remember him, remember 134 yards receiving and two touchdowns in the the, uh, Sugar Bowl against Clemson the other night? That guy did not play against Northwestern. Northwestern did not have Master Teague, who is a guy who was the second leading rusher on this team. They were down a bunch of defensive players. So the idea that that Northwestern game was some huge indictment and that they stunk never made sense to me. And I'll say this, like I'm not taking a ton of credit. I picked Clemson to win the game, but I did talk about the idea that maybe we were not giving enough Ohio State enough credit coming into this game to begin with. I'll take it a step further. I will also give myself credit because I talked about this on the last episode prior to the new year. I talked about the fact that I thought Dabo Sweeney was a real idiot for ranking Ohio State 11th in the last coaches poll, giving Ohio State extra motivation coming into this game. If you remember back to that show, or frankly, if you don't, and before I even get into that, I should probably say, like, I'm a Dabo defender, right? Like, everyone came out of the woodwork to bash Dabo on Friday night, and I'm not going to say that I wasn't part of it. We all got in our little snarky tweets or whatever, but I've been a defender of Dabo. Back in April, when he said, we're going to play football at a time where it wasn't cool to say we're going to do anything in this country, I defended Dabo on this show. You can go back and Listen um in whatever it was October or November when he called out Florida State because they canceled the game on Clemson and he basically said I think they're ducking us I defended Dabo because I think he was actually right so I've been a Dabo defender but this idea that he ranked Ohio State number 11 in his final poll was just idiotic And it was just unnecessary. And let me give you kind of a real-world example uh, in what I'm talking about. By the way, I think everybody knows, but the final coaches poll of the year. So the coaches poll is kind of this archaic thing. The coaches get to vote on who they think are the best teams. It has no bearing on the college football playoff or anything like that. But Dabo Sweeney has a vote, and he voted Ohio State number 11. And the reason that he did it is he basically said, look, they only played six games. I'm not voting anybody that... Uh, played as few games as they did any higher than than in the top ten. I'm gonna give Cincinnati and Iowa State and Florida and Oklahoma credit for playing a full season. But he puts them in at number eleven and it's just for it's just idiotic. It makes no sense. And the real world example that I'll give you is something that I think we can all relate to in the middle of this pandemic. But it's funny because anytime my wife and I get in a fight here when we're at home, she always says Aaron, man, if there's one thing I've learned living with you and working with you for the last six or seven months, it's that I got to pick and choose my battles. And I don't think Dabo did a good job of picking and choosing his battle in this one. Because I think there is a way that he could have said this and a way he could have articulated it without pissing off Ohio State, right? Like he could have come out and he could have said, you know, look, I respect Ohio State, I like Ohio State, I know to a degree he did this, but I respect Ohio State, I like Ohio State, personally, I wouldn't have had them in my top four, not on talent, but based on the fact that they just didn't play enough games, but when you put it on paper, when you vote them at number 11, all you're doing is giving them extra motivation, and I think tactically it was just a terrible decision from Dabo Sweeney. Think about, again, what I just said a minute ago. The team that you just gave gave them bulletin board material, whether you were intending to or not, by voting them at number 11, you don't think that's going to get back to that locker room? You don't think that that team that was already fired up because one, they're in the playoffs, so you know they're fired up. Two, they're fired up because they believe that they should have beaten you last year. And three, on top of all that, now you give them the extra motivation of voting them number 11? I think a lot of this loss falls on Dabo. I'll take it a step further. I think his team largely played like a team that felt like they were playing the number 11 team in the country. Did anyone else besides me feel like there was absolutely no sense of urgency on the Clemson sideline? I mean, this isn't a knock on the kid because I think he played about as well as he could have given the circumstances. I remember late in the second half or late in the second quarter, excuse me, when Ohio State is going up and down the field, up and down the field, I see Trevor Lawrence on the sideline, and he's smiling. I'm not going to sit here and crush the kid. Oh, he doesn't care. No, Trevor Lawrence cares. Trevor Lawrence fought for this season. I'm not here to bash Trevor Lawrence. What I am here to say, though, is Clemson, to me, played like a team that felt like they could just show up. They're playing the number 11 team in the country, and that team has no chance. I know there were other variables. The Clemson Offensive Coordinator play caller was out, but they did not play like a team that felt the urgency of a college football playoff, but that's also not to take away from Ohio State, which had an incredible, incredible game plan. And so as I look back at this game, I want to make sure I give proper credit to Ohio State because they were absolutely incredible. Uh, And I also want to uh, you know at some point we'll talk about Ohio State versus Alabama but I think to me the bigger story is dabble here you didn't have to do it it was unnecessary and I do think ultimately it cost your team in a way that it shouldn't have but it did all right let's talk about the uh, second <laughs> the second game of the day which was of course the first game of the day and that was Notre Dame Alabama uh, interesting game to say the least. You know, I just talked about the betting perspective, the betting angle with the Clemson Ohio State game, and I think it's probably worth noting here because Alabama jumps out to a fourteen nothing lead. Uh, Najee Harris is hurtling dudes like it's the Olympics, um, and Alabama was kind of basically completely in control the entire game. We'll get to it in a minute. There was a moment in time where I think Notre Dame could have came back. Final score, 31-14, but the score is not reflective of how close, th- the score is not reflective of how one-sided this game was. Like I said, Alabama scored the first 14 points, largely cruised from there, and they got the victory. But as I said with Clemson, and I think it's worth repeating constantly on this show, um, a lot of times the story, like, like, like to the victor go the spoils and the victor's right history and all that stuff, blah, 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 but to me, as a general rule, the more interesting story is almost always in the losing locker room, and I do think that's the case with Notre Dame, because you know what happened as soon as this game went final. uh, We all know what happened. Notre Dame's overrated. Notre Dame's terrible. Never put them in the playoff again, and all I'll say is that's ridiculous, That's ridiculous, and it made me, it's ridiculous for a number of reasons, which I'm going to get into in a minute, but it also made me come to a conclusion on Notre Dame. First of all, to say that they're overrated is to say that they're playing on the same playing field as Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, USC, Florida, Georgia, Texas A&M, whomever. They're not. That is why they're not overrated, but it really brought me to a conversation that I think we have to talk about. I think when we talk about the status of Notre Dame football in the here and now, right this second, right this moment, we have to talk about the fact that two things can be true at the same time when it comes to Notre Dame football. We can talk about the fact that no, they are absolutely not on the level of Clemson, Alabama, and Ohio State. And if you want to hold that against them, that's fine. We'll get into why in a minute. At the same time, You can argue they are not on the level of Clemson, Alabama, and Ohio State, while also arguing at the same time that Brian Kelly has this program, Notre Dame, at about as high of a level as any coach could at this specific moment in time and in this specific era of college football. And I think that's an important note here. No, Notre Dame is not Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State. But Brian Kelly also has this program about as high as you can possibly have it in this era of the college football playoffs and in college football in general. And so let's break it down. Let's go to the game. First of all, I would say this I know it was bad. I know it was ugly. I don't think it was quite as bad as the final score indicated. We all watched a few years ago when Notre Dame played Alabama. In that Orange Bowl in the twenty thirteen BCS National Championship Game, when they got steamrolled, when they were embarrassed, when it was uh, when they just got crushed, 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 crushed by Alabama in that game, Uh, it was over before it even started. The final score was forty two to fourteen, and I could be mistaken, but I believe they were down like twenty eight to nothing at halftime. They were down twenty eight to nothing at halftime. That was a beatdown. That was a bludgeoning. Friday, not good, but not as bad as that. I mean, you have to remember when you go back to Friday, yes, Alabama scored the first 14 points. No, I don't ever believe that they were really threatened, but it's worth noting, late in the third quarter, it was 21-7 Alabama. Notre Dame's driving. They have an opportunity to score a touchdown. Ian Book throws an interception. Five plays later, Alabama scores up to go 28-7. Could have been 21-14. Instead, it's 28-7, and the ballgame is over from there. I also think it's important to note, by the way, that if you want to argue Notre Dame is not on the level of Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State, okay, but guess what? Nobody else is. Nobody else is. Not Florida, not Georgia, not Oklahoma, certainly not Texas, certainly not USC, certainly not whoever. And I do believe, and I do think, and we can all use revisionist history, I don't think anybody would have been more competitive against Alabama on Friday than Notre Dame was. We saw Texas A&M against Alabama early in the season, and I do believe that the committee got it right. But I do think that in the broader picture, we have to have a conversation about this program, where they're at, because I am so tired of hearing that they are overrated. No, they're not overrated. As a matter of fact, they're properly rated, and if anything, I actually think where they are as a program is actually a little bit underrated. And it goes back to what I said a minute ago. To say that Notre Dame is overrated is to imply that they are playing on the same playing field as the elite programs in this sport, let alone the Auburns, Tennessees, uh, Texas A&Ms, Texas's, whoever, because they're not. It ain't the same. It's different. And it's funny because I do go back to New Year's Day. Uh, my wife and her family were over the house. I kind of had the game on. I'm watching it. They're doing their thing. And it was funny because my, my sister-in-law asked me, she says, well, Aaron, like, like who are you rooting for? <laughs> and I, I said, I'm, I'm I'm sort of rooting for Notre Dame. I'm not really, like, I love Saban, I love Alabama, I go on radio in Tuscaloosa every week. But I kind of explained to her, I said, look, I'm rooting for Notre Dame because I think they get a bad rap. And I kind of had to explain. I said, look, this isn't pro sports where everybody gets the same pick of the litter as players. And I kind of explain the, the school dynamic and the coaching dynamic and the geography dynamic of college football and how there's better players in certain parts of the country and how uh, Notre Dame's a tougher academic school. Uh, but I do think it's worth repeating here because, like I said a few times now, uh, Notre Dame is not playing on the same playing field as Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama, Tennessee, Florida, Georgia, whoever. Notre Dame, first of all, has, like, like to say Notre Dame's overrated is to say that they're recruiting from the same pool as everybody else, which they're not. This is no disrespect to Alabama. This is no disrespect to Ohio State. This is no disrespect to Florida. But we all know that Notre Dame has different standards, certainly academically, than those other schools. Not saying those schools aren't great schools. If you have your degree from there, I know we got a lot of fans that listen from all areas of the country. I'm not saying your school stinks. What I am saying is Notre Dame has real academic standards. They can't let in everybody that Clemson can, that Ohio State can, that Alabama can. They just can't. They're not recruiting from the same pool of players. I would argue of the best of the best, Notre Dame can maybe take 10 to 15 to 20%. Somebody kind of that used to work at Notre Dame kind of told me that. I don't know if it's accurate. Maybe they can get in 25% of the entire pool as opposed to 10%. But the broader point is they are not recruiting the same Uh, overall players that Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State are. Not a knock, not a knock, just a reality. Take it a step further. Indiana, don't know if you've ever been there. Not exactly a hotbed of high school football talent. Again, no disrespect to Indiana, that's just the reality. I looked it up just to make sure that I, I, I had these facts right. Indiana, last year produced in this not not last year, this current 2021 recruiting cycle had five players who were either four or five star players. And keep in mind, just because they're they're rated that way doesn't mean that they're they're good enough academically to get into Notre Dame. Um you know how many Florida had? Florida had 56 high school players rated four or five stars. Texas had 52 Georgia had 29, Indiana had five. Don't know if you've been in Notre Dame. It's cold, it's dark, it's snowy, it's not for everybody, and I would take it a step further with the school itself. And I talked about this on the previous episode, but I think it's worth repeating, is if you've never been in Notre Dame, what you very simply need to know is that Notre Dame is in the middle of nowhere. Like I said, it's cold, it has about... I believe uh, 7,000 or so undergrads, excuse me, about 8,700 undergrads compared to Ohio State, which has close to 47,000, Alabama, which has 29,000. And it's just a completely different school. It's rural, it's suburban, it's cold. Uh, I mentioned this on a podcast previously. There are no co-ed dorms. So on top of the fact that you can only recruit a smaller pool of players, Even within that pool, there are just going to be kids that are are not interested, right? Like, I think Clemson at this point, like, everybody's interested in. They're they're getting players from California. They're getting players from the Carolinas, from Virginia, from Pennsylvania, from Georgia, from Florida. Everybody's interested in Clemson. What does it not have that you want? If you're not very good in school, they can get you into school. If you want to go to the NFL in three years, they can get you into the NFL in three years. Uh, If you like warm weather, they got warm weather. If you like fraternities and sororities, they got fraternities and sororities. But Notre Dame? Notre Dame, 8,700 undergrads, and as I said on a previous episode, no co-ed dorms, and so you have to recruit a specific type of kid, not saying they're better or worse than the kids that go to, I don't want that to be the the, the sticking point here, but the broader point is they are not recruiting all the same players that Alabama and Clemson and Ohio State are. Small school, middle of nowhere, religious undertone, academics are real, no co-ed dorms, which by the way matters, like you think it doesn't matter, but it does. I know we got a lot of guys that listen to this show. I know a lot of you guys, like me, went to, I don't even know where you went to college, but I went to a big public university. You know why? Because I like parties, and I like girls, and I like to have fun. And if I had a choice to go to Notre Dame, I probably wouldn't go. So I'm just saying, like, this concept that we have to always tear down Notre Dame, I'm not saying they don't want to win a national championship, and I'm not saying one day they can't get there. Because again... I thought they played Alabama as well as anybody could have not named Ohio State and Clemson. And they're closing the gap and they're getting closer and they were competitive with Clemson when Clemson didn't have one of the greatest quarterbacks potentially in the history of college football. But like, I just can't wrap my head around this idea that Notre Dame is overrated. I actually think they're properly rated and if they're, if anything, they're a little bit underrated. I'll take it a step further. It's another conversation for another day. But if Brian Kelly is doing this at Notre Dame, with the academic restrictions, with the geography issues, with the recruiting restrictions. Imagine what he could do if he went to LSU or Florida or USC. There's a reason that his name has popped up for some of these jobs now, and it's because he's sitting there like, dude, I'm banging my head against the wall. I can't recruit all the same guys as all these guys. Let me see what it would be like on an even playing field not trying to tear down Notre Dame, and for the record, also not trying to disrespect Alabama, who had an incredible, 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 incredible performance. They are the best team that I have seen from start to finish this year. We'll have plenty of time to talk about the college football playoff championship game and talk about Alabama specifically. I'm sure I'll have my buddy Ryan Fowler on at some point over the next few days to talk about it. But the broader question becomes like, dude, can we stop with the Notre Dame is overrated stuff? I'm not saying they're Bama, Clemson, and Ohio State. But by the way, nobody is. And they have real limitations that nobody else does. All right, let's get to the last little topic in college football from the weekend. And uh, yeah. Did you see what happened in Austin, Texas on Saturday? And I'm not talking about Shaka Smart being a competent basketball coach all of a sudden. I'm, of course, talking about Saturday morning, Tom Herman out, Steve Sarkeesian in, in one of the most shocking, at least for me, uh, coup d'etats that we have seen in college football in a long time. And it was kind of crazy, right? Because I don't know about the rest of you guys. First of all, I don't claim to be some Texas football insider but we saw a few weeks ago that, that Urban Meyer was pursued by the school that he wasn't interested. And at that point, it kind of felt like, okay, you go, you swing for the fence, you swing for the white whale, Urban Meyer. If you don't get him, you stick with Tom Herman. He really hasn't been that bad. And are you really going to pay him $20 million, him and his staff, to go away? Uh, and so it's quiet. There's nothing going on. And all of a sudden, Saturday morning, uh, I'm just on social media, log off, I get a text from my intern, Zach, who basically just says, Texas football emoji eyes. And I flip back on and immediately I see just the chaos. And again, it was incredible not only that Tom Herman was fired with essentially nobody really on the national scene knowing, but on top of that, um, having the next head coach in place, Steve Sarkisian, who, oh by the way, was coaching in the college football playoff a day before, and so let's get into the hire a little bit because I'll be honest: if you listen to this show, uh, if you listen to this show, you know that last week when Auburn hired Brian Harson, I kind of. I admit it, like at first I was kind of eh, and then the more that I thought about it, the more that I was like, okay, this actually makes sense, I can actually get behind this, and in a lot of ways, that is how I feel about the Texas Tom Herman firing for Steve Sarkeesian hiring, to any Texas fan that, that's listening, I'm not going to lie, at first glance, I was kind of like, eh, really, you fired Tom Herman to get Steve Sarkeesian? But I think the more that I thought about it, the more that I talked to smart people, the more that I did my homework, the more that I actually think it's a really, really, really good move for Texas. And I really think if they're ever going to catch, just let's start with Oklahoma. Forget Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, who we just talked about a minute ago. And just focus on Oklahoma in the Big 12. If this was really the move that they were going to, to, if if that's really the move that they want, start with Oklahoma, then get to everybody else. I do think they needed to make a move, and I do think they made the right move. And I think it does start with Tom Herman, because I do think that myself, like a lot of you, as I just said a minute ago, listen, I don't live in Austin. I don't eat, sleep, and breathe Texas football. I follow it. I cover it. I talk to people around it. But when I looked at the Tom Herman era, say, 48 to 72 hours ago, I kind of said, like, look, kind of what I just said about Brian Kelly a minute ago. Two things can be true. He's not the answer long term. Um, he's not the guy that's going to get them to that elite, elite, elite level, but he's not terrible either, right? Like seven and three this year in a pandemic should have been eight and three. Cause they didn't play Kansas, uh, when 10 games a few years ago, this guy's really not that bad. Then I started looking into it on Saturday and while he still wasn't awful, I don't know that he was that great either. First of all, just looking at this season, um, Yes, you go 7 and 3 overall. Yes, it should have been 8 and 3. But let's look at who he beat. First of all, he lost to the two best teams in the conference by far. Uh he lost to uh Iowa State and Oklahoma, the two teams that ended up playing for the Big 12 Championship game. So that's one. He lost to a bad BYU, or a bad BYU, a bad TCU team. Um, And it kind of continued trends that have been going on that I didn't realize. First of all, um, the guy is great as an underdog in big games, but he is terrible as a favorite. And I don't know that I realized this until I saw he was actually fired on Saturday morning. Did you know that Tom Herman in his time at Texas, four seasons, never won more than three games in a row at any point in his time at Texas that stat blew me away and even if you look at that 10 win season which resulted in the Sugar Bowl win where Sam Ellinger said we're back if you look at that season they still had four losses they still lost to outside of Georgia the best teams on their schedule and so when you look at it from that framework and you look at it from what where things are now and where they are going forward I'm not sure that this guy had very many answers First of all, you're going to lose Sam Ellinger, who I think was frankly kind of a little bit overrated, but he was the face of the organization, franchise, program, whatever. Um, You did lose a bunch of other really, really talented pieces, um, and there's really no real reason to think that things are going to get better. Uh, I was kind of stunned when I saw this. So Texas, in this most recent recruiting cycle, finished with uh, the 17th ranked recruiting class in all of college football. That is behind schools, by the way, like North Carolina, Tennessee. No, know we got a lot of Tennessee fans that listen to this show, but there is no reason that you should ever be ranked at Texas outside of the top 10, the top 15, unless you have like five scholarships to give. Like you should dominate recruiting and instead Texas was the opposite. Not only were they the 17th ranked recruiting class nationally, but how about this? Of the top 25 recruits in the state of Texas, You know how many Texas signed in this recruiting cycle? They signed one of them. One of the top 25 recruits in the state of Texas was committed to Texas in this 2021 recruiting class. Um, That's not good. And on top of that not being good, you know who is coming in and dominating that state? Everybody else. Alabama has five of the top 25 ranked recruits in the state of Texas committed to Alabama. Not a good sign for the future of Texas football with the idea that Alabama is coming into your state and getting guys. LSU is coming into your state and getting guys. Ohio State Garrett Wilson, wide receiver stud. Uh, He is a guy from Texas who is at Ohio State this year. I believe Baron Browning, their best uh, linebacker, is from the state of Texas. Not good when everybody else is coming in, let alone the fact that Texas A&M, which just won the Orange Bowl, has six of the top 25 players committed in the state of Texas. So, you're coming off a recruiting class where you have one of the top 25 players in the state of Texas committed. And there's no reason to think it was going to get better in 2022, right? First of all, you had the number one quarterback in the country committed. He decommits is now going to Ohio State. But on top of that, all the fans and all the parents and all the players know, bro, you're on the hot seat, Tom Herman. No disrespect, but We saw the reports. We know the school went after Urban Meyer, and we know that if they don't fire you this year, they're going to fire you next year. So it's hard to imagine the scenario where any of the elite recruits in 2022 um, decide to go play for Tom Herman in Texas. I would say on top of that, I heard some really awful stories about kind of just the way he treated people. And I'm not here to sit here and say, oh, college football, like, it's all kumbaya and everybody's best friends. Like I'm guessing, you know, Nick Saban isn't roasting marshmallows in the backyard with his players. But you know, I heard stories and give credit to uh, the the folks at 24/7 Sports who cover Texas all the time. Chip Brown who broke this story, Taylor Estes who I actually had on my radio show on Saturday. But she was telling stories about how you know Tom Herman would see players in the facility and wouldn't make eye contact with them, wouldn't say hello to them. Um, the way he burned bridges with a lot of his former assistant coaches. And so when you factor all that in, that it wasn't going in the right direction, that even though you went seven and three, you didn't really beat anybody of substance. I kind of think maybe it was the best for everybody, not just for Texas, by the way, but how about Tom Herman who gets $15 million to go sit on the sidelines, maybe go work for ESPN next year. Think about what went wrong. Try to figure it out. And he will get another head coaching job at some point, um, and, and just be better at the next spot. So I, I get why it was done. I get why it happened. And now I think the second question becomes why Steve Sarkeesian was the right guy. And when I look at this situation, I think it's it's actually pretty simple. Um, like I said, first of all, I was not crazy excited about the hire when it first happened. And the first reason was like, you know, Steve Sarkeesian had his issues at USC, And I'm not here to say that anybody would be perfect at Texas. Even Urban Meyer comes with his own issues. But obviously, look, Steve Sarkeesian had some troubles off the field, substance abuse issues, all that stuff. And I would say on a very serious note, I hope he's okay. I hope he's moved past it. But at first, I was kind of worried, and I kind of thought about it like, dude, is this guy ready for the pressure cooker that is Texas football? But when I heard him kind of talk about his experience at USC, and I'll say this too, I live in L.A., People don't think of USC as one of these crazy ravenous fan bases like an SEC fan base, like an Oklahoma, like a Texas, like an Ohio State. I'm telling you, USC fans are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, okay? Love them, respect them. They think they should be where Ohio State and Clemson is. I don't necessarily think they were they are wrong, but USC is is, I would argue, as much pressure as as Texas is or any job is on top of that never forget Steve Sarkeesian was a link to the glory days under Pete Carroll so it's not as though he hasn't dealt with pressure before not to say he'll handle it perfectly at Texas I don't know that anybody will but I do believe that he's grown I do believe that he's matured and I think beyond that um, I think he kind of understands what he did wrong to lead him to the situation that he ended up with at USC If you watch the introductory, I guess you call it a press conference, but it was really a Zoom press conference. Sark talked a lot about, look, man, I made a ton of mistakes when I was the head coach at Washington and at USC. And the one thing I've learned since then, the one thing I've learned while working in the NFL, the one thing I've learned talking to Nick Saban and working for Nick Saban is the idea that, um, like, I got to delegate and I can't do this all by myself and I can't run a program like Texas uh, without hiring really 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 smart people around me putting it on the coaching staff putting it on the players putting it on the support staff and so I think Steve Sarkeesian gets it I think he understands he can't be the guy that he was at USC and I really do think that he has learned from Nick Saban and I would say on top of that I think that's a factor too listen I know we all joke about like the Nick Saban um uh rehab tour and I I use rehab loosely and I hope people understand I'm not making fun of Sark when I say that, but like that's a real thing in college football. Well look at what Nick Saban has done for a lot of these guys. I mean Lane Kiffin, yeah he's still a little goofy and says some stuff that he shouldn't sometimes. That guy had a really good first year at Ole Miss all things considered. Mike Loxley at Maryland's playing doing pretty well for himself all things considered after making a pit stop at Alabama. Um, you know, you go on and on down the list. Butch Jones, we'll see what he does. But Butch Jones got off the radar for a few years. Ended up at Alabama. Charlie Strong is there now, so we'll see. But I do think he learned from Nick Saban, and I do think he is the kind of guy that Texas needs. I think he's a guy that's going to hire smart people on his staff, and I think he's a guy that's going to bring a style that is going to be attractive to recruits, not only in the state of Texas, but wherever, to make Texas a nationally relevant program. Now, I know in day one, hour one, minute one, he's not going to have the talent that he just had at Alabama with Devontae Smith and Najee Harris and all those guys, but man, there's, there's plenty of talent in Texas, and when you can put on film and you can show them all the ways that you used all those players, all the points that you put up, how dynamic the offense was, I think the guy is going to be pretty appealing to high school recruits. I think he'll be smart enough, too, to basically hand the defense to somebody else the way that Ryan Day has at Ohio State, the way that Lincoln Riley has at Oklahoma. And so I think, again, when you're trying to find a guy that can compete with Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma, I think he's the guy. I think he's young. I think he's energetic. I think he's going to recruit well. And of course, it does matter who he hires and all that stuff. But I think he knows what his limitations are. And he also knows what his strengths are. And I do think that's important when you look at this job and you look at how Steve Sarkeesian fits in. So I'll just tell you this. I'm really excited. Listen, I'm old enough to remember when Texas was actually really good and when Texas-Oklahoma was a real rivalry. And I think Steve, Sar- 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 Steve Sarkeesian is the guy that can get Texas there. And it won't happen overnight. But what I would also say, one of the other reasons why maybe you get rid of Tom Herman, it's not like the Big 12 is that good this at right now. I mean, think about it. Baylor is way down under Dave Aranda year one. Not his fault, but I'm just saying. Um. Texas Tech is terrible. They were talking Texas Tech. They were talking about bringing back Art Bryles to that program. They were so bad this off season. Um, you know TCU is down. O- Oklahoma State feels like it's trending in the wrong direction. And so if you can just get by Oklahoma, you can compete for the playoffs. Now I'm not saying that's easy, but I do think Sark is the guy that can get them to that level. And I do think it's going to be fascinating to see going forward because I think for the first time in a long time, Texas has a chance to be relevant. And I do think that he is the guy that in theory can get him there. Will it happen? Who knows? But I do think it can happen. All right. I think that's it for this segment of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Uh, A lot of college football. So obviously, look, over the next couple of weeks, we'll be transitioning more into college hoops. But right now, as we get through the national championship game, as we get through some of this coaching carousel stuff, we will focus, of course, on college football. But a lot of college basketball coming. we got a lot of good guests here in the coming weeks. All the guys that I normally have this time of year, hopefully get a couple coaches, all that stuff. But we are going to get to college basketball momentarily. But just want to say, a lot of college football, had to focus on it. Let me take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk college basketball. We'll actually, talk a little bit of Shaka Smart, who incredibly has Texas. I think is one of the top five teams in the country. Uh, we will talk about that incredible story at Kentucky with Dante Allen. And We'll talk about some of the other stuff of the weekend. Tennessee taking their first loss. Uh, Arkansas pff, taking their first loss. Just a bizarre game against Missouri. And uh, and yeah. And then we will get out of here. All right, everybody, Uh, I am back. Uh, Yeah, yeah, listen, this was a, a lot of college football to get to to lead the show, but I'll be honest, this was really probably the last weekend that we go really super heavy on the college football stuff. Keep in mind, we got one game left in college football, and then we are going to completely shift gears to college basketball. So I know a lot of you come here more for college basketball than college football. So let's get into the weekend that was, because it does feel like this was the first weekend. We are officially in conference play across college basketball. We are officially uh, into the meat of January. It is go time in college hoops, and really over the next two, three, four months, we are going to jump two feet into college basketball. So let's talk about what we saw here over the last couple days. And what I would say is this. I think there's two really, really big topics that I want to get to momentarily. The first one was this incredible, incredible deal that happened with Dante Allen and the University of Kentucky. Uh, This kid comes off the bench, high school state player of the year. John Calipari won't give him a chance. And this kid just balls out. We will get into that momentarily. We'll also get into within the SEC Arkansas, a crucial injury to basically their best interior player, Justin Smith. Arkansas came into the weekend 9-0. They lose their first game without him, and I think there are real questions about Arkansas going forward. Before we get to that, though, do got to give a quick shout out, right? Because uh, uh, what I I would say about this show in general is I think one of the reasons that many of you guys and girls listen um, is because I'm not afraid to say what I really believe. And sometimes that's not all pretty. Sometimes it's not glossy, even for the best and brightest in sports. Right? I've criticized John Calipari the last couple weeks. I've criticized Jim Harbaugh. I've criticized whoever. Um, And I'm not always right, and I'm not always wrong, and it's not always whatever. But in the moment, as as my radio partner on Saturday nights on Fox Sports Radio, Arnie Spanier says, we do the show today. And because of that, I have to be fair and balanced and honest with my coverage with what I do at a particular time. And so I bring that up because over the last probably three years, two years since I started this podcast, I have crushed one individual uh, maybe more than anybody else. And that is Shaka Smart. Um, And I don't necessarily think I was wrong, but I also do have to give Shaka Smart credit because on Saturday, his Texas Longhorns went to Kansas and laid the smackdown on Bill Self's Kansas Jayhawks. Final score, 84-59. I believe it was the worst loss ever in Fog Allen Fieldhouse history. And Texas is 8-1. and one. And when you, uh, by the time you guys listen to this show on Monday, they are probably going to be ranked in the top five nationally. And so very quickly, I do want to give some credit to Shaka Smart because I've been thinking a lot about this situation. And I do think on the one hand, I don't think I was wrong to criticize him here over the last couple years. First of all, what I would say is five seasons at Texas, we know the stats, but they're worth repeating. 90 and 78 overall. Uh, Forty and fifty coming into this season in the Big 12, so a losing Big 12 record coming into this season, no NCAA tournament wins, two NCAA tournament appearances, and of course, when we talk about Shaka Smart, we have to contextualize it by saying the guy who was in charge of the program before he got there, Rick Barnes, went to 16 NCAA tournaments in 17 years, and so when you fire Rick Barnes you, and you bring in the next guy, that next guy better be a rock star and in my defense shaka smart has it in my defense as i said zero ncaa tournament wins in my defense as i said he really wasn't all that good even through the end of last season now in his defense Texas probably would have made the NCAA tournament. My guess is they would have needed one win at the Big 12 tournament to solidify an NCAA tournament bid. But it doesn't change the fact that I don't think it was unfair to criticize Shaka Smart up until this season. I'll take it a step further. Not only do I not think it was unfair to criticize him, I'll take it beyond that and say that I think if this pandemic hadn't happened, he wouldn't be the head coach of Texas right now. Never forget that after last season, It took Texas three full weeks after the season in a pandemic when no one could go anywhere and no one could do anything. It took them three weeks to announce that he was coming back as the head coach of the University of Texas. And you know how I feel pretty confident that they were looking for other suitors in this job? Is because look at what happened with this Steve Sarkeesian stuff over the last couple of days. Steve Sarkeesian, it was clear that they were not going to fire Tom Herman until the AD Chris Del Conte was comfortable believing that he had a candidate to replace Tom Herman that was superior to Tom Herman, that could get the fan base fired up in a way that Tom Herman couldn't. All of a sudden, boom, Tom Herman out, boom, uh, Steve Sarkeesian in. And so when I see that it took three weeks to announce that uh, Shaka Smart was gonna be coming back to Texas, you know what that says to me? It says that he probably, the AD, snooped around quite a bit and tried to see if he could get anybody better than Shaka Smart. Unfortunately, it was during a pandemic, and unfortunately, the reality set in that they couldn't get anybody to leave a good job in the middle of a pandemic to come coach at the University of Texas. And so, I don't think it was unfair for me to criticize Shaka Smart. I also have to be 100% blunt. He has done as good of a coaching job as anybody in college basketball this year. It's not just that they beat Kansas on Saturday. I mean, I think you can argue pretty convincingly they have about as impressive a resume as anyone in college basketball. They obviously beat Kansas, who was ranked number three in the country at the time. They beat Oklahoma State, who's 7-2 and two overall. They beat UNC. They beat Indiana. They beat a good Davidson team out of the A-10. Um, and their only loss was to Villanova in a game that I watched that they had a chance to win. And so when I look at Shaka Smart, I I think that one, two things can be true, right? That feels like that's a big theme of today's show. Two things can be true with Notre Dame football. Two things can be true with Steve Sarkeesian's hire. And two things can be true with Shaka Smart is I don't think it was unfair to criticize, but he has clearly found his mojo. And I do think that sometimes it just takes a little while longer than we as fans, and I'm not a Texas fan, but you get the point, that we as fans expect uh, my buddy Rob Douster brought up this point on Sunday morning. I thought it was a great point. Coach K, it took him five years at Duke to even get to the NCAA tournament at Duke. And I'm not comparing Duke in 1983 or whatever to Texas in 2021 because, oh, by the way, uh Texas uh was a pretty good program when Rick Barnes left. So it's not as though um it's not as though Rick Barnes left the cupboard empty. But it took Coach K five years to get to the NCAA tournament. It took Jay Wright four years to get to the NCAA tournament. It took Tony Bennett five years to win his first NCAA tournament game. And so it's not inconceivable that it just took Shaka Smart a little while longer than than we thought it would, right? And on top of that, I think when you look at the makeup of this team, I think it also took him a little while longer than expected to kind of get the right kids in this program. It's interesting, right? Like I've heard him on John Rothstein's podcast before, Coach Smart. I've never talked to him, never uh, spoken with him personally. I don't know if he'd be interested in coming on this podcast with some of the ways that I've spoken about him before, but what he said is when you recruit at the University of Texas, there's an expectation that comes with being a Texas basketball player that maybe wasn't the case at VCU. When you're at VCU, you You're recruiting two- and three-star guys. You're recruiting guys that are overlooked. You're recruiting guys that aren't necessarily, um, uh, you know, they're they're, they're more willing to sit the bench. They're more willing to redshirt. They're more willing to bide their time because they haven't been catered to throughout their entire careers in the lead-up to college basketball. Texas is a little bit different. And I do think early on, he may be targeted. I don't want to blame any individual player, but maybe not the right kinds of players. Jared Allen, McDonald's All-American, but he was also a one and done, out the door before he even got going. Mo Bamba, one and done, out the door before he even got going. There were some other guys as well. And so when I look at this team, when I look at the way they play, I think they largely play, honestly, like one of his old VCU teams, only with better players. Beyond that, he's got guys that, you know, are, are three, four-year college players. And this has been a big theme of this season where the older veteran teams are, are more confident and comfortable, well, he's got a bunch of four-year college players that weren't stars coming out of high school. Now, some of them were. Matt Coleman, their starting point guard, chose Texas over Duke, but he's a fourth-year senior, averaging 14 points a game, and is a guy that looks like a veteran college point guard, never phased, never overwhelmed. Courtney Ramey, as I said on a previous show, was committed to Louisville, the last kid to ever commit to Rick Pitino at Louisville. So it's not as though he didn't have offers and opportunities, but he ends up at Texas. They got another kid named Kai Jones that really is kind of off the radar who's going to be an NBA draft pick this year, but was uh, an under-recruited, fringe top 50 kid who has developed. I mean, that kid I think is going to be like a top 15 pick by the time this draft rolls around. So I don't want to spend too much more time on Shaka. I can't believe I just did like seven minutes on him. I do need to give him credit, though, because when I watch Texas – they could have beat Villanova. They did beat Kansas. I, I, I'm i not saying they're in that Gonzaga, uh, 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 Baylor, and I still think Tennessee is in that elite category. We'll get to Tennessee in a minute. But I think they're right there, man. I think they're right there, and I think they're an interesting team to follow. And it's a credit to Shaka Smart, who I've been very critical of. You know who else I've been critical of over the last couple of weeks? How about John Calipari? Uh, not sure how much you've been listening to this show, I've been very critical of John Calipari uh, and I called Kentucky basketball basically the Michigan football of college basketball in the sense that I don't want to keep talking about them because I I don't want to keep talking about a team that is uninteresting and doesn't win, but every week they give me something new to talk about Uh, and for the first time in about six weeks, I got something really good and fun to talk about and that's a win over Mississippi State on Saturday. And so, I'm not here to talk, first of all, we got a ton of Kentucky fans that listen to this show, and you guys know, I'm not just here to talk about a win, but man, does a win feel good. Instead, though, what I am here to talk about is how the win happened, what happened, and why it was one of, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this. One of the most surreal, incredible things that I have ever seen in my time covering college sports. So for, for the layman, this is I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of give you the details and then give you the story behind the story and then we'll get into the game themselves. For the layman, the reason the game was so cool was because Kentucky, not sure if you heard, kind of stink. and coming into this game. They hadn't won since their opener against Moorhead State, had lost six in a row, had looked miserable at times. Nobody's playing well. They can't hit threes. They're turning the ball over too much. Well, Calipari sort of shakes up his lineup. Then he gets ejected. But this kid comes off the bench named Dante Allen, and he goes berserk. Kentucky had not hit more than, uh, I think, six three-pointers. They hit... More than six three-pointers in any game this year one time, okay? Six three-pointers as a team. Dante Allen comes off the bench and goes seven for 11 from three, 23 points overall, and is bananas. And I mean, he is like, you know, a a six-foot-seven Steph Curry, like step back, fade away, off a pick, two hands in his face. This kid cannot miss. So that story is cool enough in and of itself. But what makes it cooler is the story behind the story. And I have so many of you guys who listen to this show religiously, guys and girls. And I appreciate so much that you guys support this show, listen every episode. But the reason I bring that up is because I talk about often, sometimes it's not just the story, but it's the story behind the story, which is so cool. And I don't think there's a better example of this than Dante Allen at Kentucky. And here is the story behind the story for the Kentucky people that are not diehard Kentucky fans. They don't know the backstory. Dante Allen is, by all accounts, um, at least in the past decade or so, one of the best high school players in Kentucky basketball history, at least in modern history, was Kentucky Basketball Player of the Year, averaged 40 points per game in his senior season. And he committed relatively early, uh, you know, it was the end of his uh, summer of his junior year, so it's not like he committed as a sophomore, but it's not like John Calipari took him at the last minute. But after he redshirted last year, there was a car accident, and then there was a knee injury. um, Everyone was kind of wondering, is this kid ever going to get his shot, or or is this kid going to get a shot at all? And it's one thing to not give the local kid a shot uh, when you're winning, right? It's one thing, you know, 2014, 2015, Kentucky's going to final fours and they have Derek Willis and Dominique Hawkins, two local kids sitting on the bench. It's another thing when you're one in six and you can't get out of your own way and you can't do the one thing that Dante Allen does well, which is fill the basket. Kentucky came into Saturday afternoon last in the SEC in scoring, and they got this kid sitting on the bench that averaged 40 a game in high school, and Calipari just refuses to play him. And not only does he refuse to play him, but I've talked about it a little bit on this show over the last couple weeks, he refuses to play him with the most absurd excuses imaginable. After one game, Calipari says, Well, you know, I got to let my other guys miss before I can start bringing guys off the bench. And in a way, I got what Calipari was saying. What he was saying was, I can't pull a guy every time he misses a shot, or that guy's confidence is going to be shot. But the way he said it was bad enough. And then on top of that, Uh, one, you're crushing uh, the kid, you're basically saying, I don't have any confidence in that kid, but I have too much confidence in these kids, and second of all, you're kind of giving off this this vibe that there's entitlement within the program, that if you're a five-star player, it doesn't matter how many shots you miss, we're going to keep running you out there, so there's that, then after that, In the most recent game against Louisville last week, uh, Calipari comes to the podium and basically says, well, you know, I didn't put him in in the first half, so how am I going to put him in in the second half? And so Kentucky fans are livid, and I get why they're livid, and this is the story behind the story, but after about the last three or four losses, every press conference, Calipari is asked, hey, you going to give Dante Allen a chance? You going to give Dante Allen a chance? What's going on with Dante Allen? And at first it was kind of like, hey, maybe he could help. Hey, maybe this would maybe this would shake things up. And then over the last two, three, four games, when it became clear that what Calipari was doing was not working, and the one thing that Dante Allen can do well, Kentucky desperately needed, it got more and more and more aggressive. And essentially what happened over the last two weeks, the Kentucky fan base through the media basically peer pressured John Calipari into giving this kid Dante Allen a chance. And so there goes Dante Allen. He's waiting his turn. And Calipari, again, keeps coming up with all these excuses. Oh, you know, we're going to wait. And, you know, he's going to get his turn. And I told him to be ready. And then there was a weird closed-door scrimmage with a D2 team from the from right across town. And nobody really knows what happens with that. And so finally, this kid gets his shot and literally puts the entire team on his back and leads Kentucky to a victory at Mississippi State. It was incredible to watch because Kentucky was doing their usual Kentucky thing this year. They can't make shots. They're turning the ball over. They fall way down in the second half. Uh, Allen makes a shot or two. Then Calipari gets ejected. Then he gets hot. Then the staff pulls him to get him rest. It ends up going to overtime and double overtime, but he hit every big shot uh, except for one or two. I don't want to discredit anybody else, and Kentucky gets the win. And so it was an incredible story, and I think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens going forward. Because Calipari even said in the post game uh, uh, media availability, not media availability in the locker room, he said it. It's on video. You can find it on the Kentucky Instagram page, the Kentucky Twitter page. But he flat out says, like, "Hey, he got his shot and he delivered, and some of you guys are not are, are going to lose some playing time over it." And so it'll be fascinating to see what happens. We know that they had a kid named Cam Fletcher leave the program. He is since back. Calipari has basically said the kid has no guarantees that he's going to play. But freshman BJ Boston, McDonald's All-American, is really struggling. Terrence Clark, McDonald's All-American, was injured on Saturday, did not play, and is struggling. And it's going to be fascinating to see what Calipari does because, again, the team got hot when Calipari got ejected and when his assistant coach, Bruiser Flint, kept this kid in the game. The one thing I would say, first of all, if, if Calipari does not play this kid, he he will never live it down. I saw people say, my buddy Jack Pilgrim included, this is not a criticism of Jack. I heard a lot of people say, Calipari will never live down not playing Dante Allen until yesterday. Well, I disagree. If he keeps winning, nobody's gonna care. If you, if you go on a... Um, you know, uh, uh, whatever, a 15-3 and three run in SEC play, and I'm not saying it's going to happen. But if it does, nobody's really going to care that you didn't play Dante Allen right away as long as he's getting playing time. Now, if you immediately go back to not playing him or limiting how much he can play, then you will never hear the end of it. But what is interesting, though, is it does give Kentucky their entire season a second chance. Because if you watch the game, When Dante Allen started hitting shots, it did three very important things. First of all, it just gave them offense, which they've needed since the first game of the season. Second of all, it created all sorts of spacing uh, on the floor where you just get one guy to hit threes. I mean, we all watch basketball here, people, whether it's Kansas, Baylor, Gonzaga, whatever, when you hit threes, that opens up the floor that much more where now all of a sudden there isn't so much of a burden on your big guys down low. There isn't so much of a burden on your point guard to make plays in traffic. All of a sudden the floor is really, really, really wide and three, and I thought this was a really important part, it gave everybody else confidence and John Calipari kind of talked about that in the post-game press conference where he said like, dude, I'm just telling you, man, You know, uh, you know, it it, it built on itself when we were struggling in that one guy misses a shot and then everybody else thinks it's their job to pick up the team. And so then those guys miss shots and it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy thing. Well, all of a sudden, Dante Allen made a few shots and there were guys on that that floor for Kentucky that looked that much better. Devin Askew, their point guard, finished with 11 points. Olivier Saar hit two three-pointers and looked like the grad transfer, or I guess regular transfer, not grad transfer, that I was expecting him to. So it's a fascinating story, and I just think it's worth monitoring because it is going to be just a really, really, really interesting thing to see what Kentucky does going forward. And I'll tell you this, the SEC is really, really, really tough this year. I Don't listen to all these idiots that say it's not tough. Florida's good, Tennessee's awesome, we're gonna get to Arkansas momentarily, Missouri's attorney team, and I think LSU's pretty good as well. That's five teams I just named off the top of my head. Bama, too, is playing really well, which we're gonna get to. But I'm just saying, you get on a little bit of run, you build some confidence This kid may have single-handedly saved their season. We will see. We probably won't get a real definitive answer here for the next couple days because they do play Vandy, who, if you can't beat Vandy later this week, that's bad, bad, bad news. Uh, But you do have Florida, Alabama, and Auburn in three straight games after that, which could and will be a challenge. Outside of Alabama, outside of Alabama, outside of Kentucky, there is one other big picture kind of thing that I think happened that really is going to shake up college hoops, specifically in the SEC this weekend, and that is an injury to Arkansas's Justin Smith Justin Smith is a forward at Arkansas was the second leading rebounder, but really is the best rebounder. If you look at any stat that matters, the guy that's the, the leading rebounder is Connor Vanover who's a seven foot three center. I would hope that kid could lead the team in rebounding. but Justin Smith, it happened and it's fascinating and it's fascinating because if you want to go back to last week before the new year, um, I was ready to be geeked out on Arkansas basketball on this podcast. Because if you watched Arkansas, I guess it was Wednesday night, they played Auburn at Auburn, and they looked awesome. 95 plus points in that game. They got scoring from everywhere. And for people who weren't paying attention, they went 8-0 and in the out-of-conference portion of play. Uh, but this was their first big test, and they delivered. Like I said, 97 points, excuse me, I think I said 95. They made nine three-pointers, made a bunch of foul shots, out-rebounded Auburn, and just played like a a top 15 team, not even a top 25 team, a top 15 team. Then the bad news hits. Justin Smith went down in that game. Uh, Eric Musselman, who's obviously been on this podcast a million times, says he's not sure if it's serious or not. He doesn't believe that it's anything long-term. And then Saturday morning, we find out that uh, Justin Smith is going to need surgery and is out three to six weeks. And so this is obviously a game changer for Arkansas. This obviously completely changes the dynamic of their entire team. And it showed on Saturday when they got killed by Missouri. And don't be surprised by the final score. Don't let the final score fool you. Arkansas lost 81 to 68. But if you watch that game, it was just really bad. And maybe saying they got killed is not the right way to put it but they could do no right. They could do no right. Uh, they it was a game I've never seen anything like it. They missed according to my buddy uh, JC Hoops on Twitter who's a huge Arkansas fan and, and a great reporter on that program. They missed they they missed 22 of 30 layups. They went eight of 30 on layups in that game. Um, you know, didn't get a ton of second chance points. They got out-rebounded by, uh, by Missouri by a quite comfortable margin, and they missed a bunch of foul shots too. And so Arkansas loses their first game, and it comes in a time where they just lost their best, most important low post player. And so the question becomes now, where does Arkansas go from here? Because they were a team that I really felt like, look, I think Tennessee's the best team in the SEC, and then I thought there was about a four-team middle that I thought could compete with Tennessee based on what I've seen so far this season uh, that would compete with Tennessee. I thought Missouri was there, even though they got smoked by Tennessee. I thought, um, I thought um, Florida was there. I thought LSU was there. And I thought Arkansas was absolutely right there. The problem is we saw what happened with the injury. We saw what happened, what they looked like without Justin Smith. And now, of course, there's problems. Now, I will say, try to be positive vibes only on this show, I, you Two things can me true, right? They may not be quite as good as they looked against Auburn, but I know for sure they are not as bad as they looked against, uh, against Missouri. So I think that's the first positive. I think the second positive is they are really, really, really deep and really, really, really talented, just not so much in the front court. Outside of that guy, Connor Vanover, that I mentioned, who, oh, by the way, went 0 for 11 from the field against Missouri. I'm guessing that's not going to happen again. They're really good on the perimeter. When you look at Arkansas, obviously Justin Smith was a huge X factor for them, and losing him hurts, but they have a freshman named Moses Moody who's averaging almost 17 points a game, They have a gu- and they have two guards named J.D. Notay and Desi Sills who are averaging 15 and 13. Jalen Tate is averaging just under 10. So that is four guards right there that are averaging all double figures, including Moses Moody, who's averaging almost 17 points per game. And I bring all that up to very simply say the talent is still there in the program, uh, but I do think they're gonna have to switch up how they play. A program which last year had no size at all, did just lose their best interior player, and I do think they might have to go seven foot three Connor Vanover with a bunch of guards that are somewhere in the range of like six two, six three, all the way up to Jalen Tate and Moses Moody, who are about six six apiece. Not saying it's 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 what you want to do, but it's what you might have to do. And at the very least, you do have some scoring punch. I do think you're going to need contributions from other players. I think it's really interesting to look at this Arkansas roster. Um, first of all, a guy that I hyped all offseason, a guy that was hyped in the preseason, grad transfer Vance Jackson, there's something going on there. He's not playing. I can't get a straight answer as to what's going on. But it's clear that he, he got no burn on Saturday. Uh, so I don't know if he's not practicing well. I don't know if he has a bad attitude. Arkansas needs that kid to be a difference maker. He needs, they need him to come back and play right away. And they may also have to rely on a couple freshmen, Jalen Williams and Devontae Davis. I thought both actually played well on Saturday. Uh, but, you, but you need to be better. You need to be better, and you need to step up. This is why you came to an SEC program, and now it's go time. So we will see what happens with this program. But I'm just fascinated to see in the bigger picture because I do think that when you look at Arkansas, I still think they're the third, fourth, fifth best team even without Justin Smith, but that injury really, really, really hurts and you just really, really, really hope uh, that he can get back soon and that they can kind of uh, uh, you know, stem the tides or whatever. I don't know what the right word is until he comes back. Really quickly, a couple other results from across the weekend. I can't believe I've already done a half an hour on just those three topics in college basketball. But first of all, Tennessee took its first loss of the season. I'm not going to sit here and freak out. I'm not going to sit here and say that it's the end of the world for Tennessee. I just think that, look, they still play really good defense. They just didn't score. I mean, you look at how they played in that game, and it just did not look like the team that we saw the first few weeks of the season. Uh, When they played Alabama on Saturday, this was a team that was really effective offensively coming into that game. And instead, they shot just 31% from the field, four of 21 from three, and they just did not look like themselves. Everybody wants to freak out. Tennessee, Torres, you told me they're amazing. I still think they're amazing. They're deep, they're athletic, they're talented. um, But I do think that, you know, that was a wake-up call that they're not unbeatable. I will say it's worth mentioning... They do play Arkansas this week uh, on Wednesday at Thompson Bowling Arena. That's going to be a big game for both of those programs as each is trying to bounce back. I also, by the way, want to give a little credit to a friend of the Aaron Torres podcast, Nate Oates for the big win Uh, and I do actually give him a lot of credit because for people who do not follow this stuff day to day Alabama was really up and down to start the season they went six and three but if you looked at their resume they lost to the three best teams on their schedule lost to Western Kentucky at home lost to um, whoever they lost to Stanford etc on and on and on barely beat Furman in overtime and things were clearly seemingly trending in the wrong direction Uh, there's some issue internally He's, Nate Oates suspends John Petty, yes he is still in college basketball, he suspends John Petty for a game, he suspends another player named James Rojas for a game, and since those guys came back, this has been a completely different program, they beat Ole Miss on Saturday, or on, during the week, 82-64. Ole Miss was, along with Tennessee, one of the best defensive teams in college basketball. And then on Saturday, they doubled down with the win at Tennessee. And this team that loves to shoot three seems to have finally found its stroke from beyond the arc. They finished 10-20 from the three-point line. And so Alabama might be another one of those teams in the SEC that is worth monitoring because they seem to finally hit their stride. Whew. okay, okay. <laughs> I think that's it. I mean, we're, we're we're closing in on an hour and however long time that I've been doing this Air Tour Sports podcast. So great show today. What I'll say is this: no new show until Wednesday morning. So I will record. This is going to be the the new schedule going forward. I will do a show Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. It used to be Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. But what I think I'll do Monday: recap of the day, week, weekend. Wednesday's show will be kind of what we missed on Monday and Tuesday, and then Thursday will be whatever's new plus a preview of the weekend ahead. Obviously, these next few days we'll talk a lot of college football, college football playoff, but we'll also talk college basketball. Like I said, Kentucky has a crucial, crucial, crucial game against uh, Vanderbilt that they just have to win if they're going to get back on track. In uh, Arkansas-Tennessee all of a sudden is that much more important with both those teams losing. So that amongst the many big stories in college basketball this week. Before we get out of here, really quickly, please make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. As I said a million years ago when this show started, make it your New Year's resolution. Do it for Torres, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, Podcast Addict is the way to go. Pod being Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. And also make sure you're following um, not only on social media, but YouTube as well. I do have a YouTube channel like I said if you look me up you can find me uh pretty easily and uh yeah a lot of the segments from this show plus some other stuff that isn't from this show makes the uh the college uh, or makes the YouTube channel so Aaron Torres on YouTube but that is all for today's show. Shout out to Torrent Craig, shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I will be back Wednesday with another episode with the second episode of 2021. On the Aaron Torres podcast. Talk so, party people. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?